going to give a short introduction to Psalms. Now, our brother Gilson did that when he began this series. So I only want to touch on some of the things that, for the sake of time, he couldn't say. I mean, if he gave an introduction to the Psalms, it would have taken up his whole message. So we're going to look at a few key aspects of the Psalms, and this will be helpful for you when, when you read the Psalms at home. And that's probably everyone's favorite book of, the, of Scripture, isn't it? it? It is mine, because it, it shows me how to properly relate to God and Christ just the way the psalmist did. There are so many precious truths that are brought out in the psalms. And then we'll just look at Psalm 1 and understand what the function of Psalm 1 is relative to the entire book of psalms, the 150 psalms that are contained in it. So the psalms actually form the hymnal of the Jewish people, and it was central to their worship. They sang the Psalms in the temple worship in Solomon's day. And then after the exile, when they came back and rebuilt the temple, in our Lord's day, they sang the Psalms as part of their temple worship. It was key. It was like a hymnal. Now, we don't use a hymnal. We project lyrics. But you're familiar with a hymnal. It's a book of hymns with the music and the lyrics. The Psalms formed their hymnal. We don't know what the melody was that they were sung to, but we know those were the lyrics. It just so happened that the book of Psalms for the earliest Christians in the first centuries after Christ, the Psalms were their hymnal as well. They would sing Psalms from the book of Psalms when the church gathered together each week. Even further down in church history, the Puritans as well, and the Reformers, they used psalms. Sometimes they wrote their own songs and modified them. Sometimes they wrote songs that might have alluded to things in the psalms or in other scripture. But the Puritans in particular still sang the psalms. So even 400 years ago, 350 years ago, Christians, English-speaking Christians, were still using the psalms in their corporate worship when the church gathered together on Sunday. Uh, the Scottish patriot and politician, uh, Andrew Fletcher, over 350 years ago, 300, 350 years ago, said this, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. This is a politician. They love to write laws. They love to enforce laws. And yet here's a politician who understood something. He said, let me write the songs of a nation. The music, the melody, and the harmony affects the emotions. That's both good and bad. Sometimes emotionalism is mistaken for spirituality. Uh, when we really get into a song. It's not necessarily the same. It could be, but often, sadly, it's not. It's just emotions. The lyrics of a song, though, they affect the mind. They affect how we think, how we reason, how we initially view a situation. Do we view it like the songs of the world, 
or do we view it like the songs of God? That music will influence even the writing of laws. Here's a key fact from church history. Throughout church history, the hymnology, the hymns that were sung by the church, the hymnology of the church has always been a measure of its theology. The hymns, the songs that we sing as a church gathered together actually reflect our theology. What we believe to be true about God and Christ, what we believe to be the correct teaching of Scripture. The songs that we sing are so important. Never forget that, particularly the lyrics. The music also, but particularly the lyrics. There is a practical theology that is in the Psalms. Theology is not just for the classroom of the seminary. Theology is immensely practical, and we've seen that. You've heard me mention that time and time again, and I've shown you in some messages how practical it is. But perhaps the Psalms are the greatest example in Scripture, in a single book, of practical theology. There's two main focuses in the Psalms. It's throughout Scripture, but it's right in our face when it comes to the Psalms because of the terminology that's used, and we're going to see that in Psalm 1 today. There's the vertical focus of the psalmist, which is eternal. It's his relationship with the Lord God. But then there's also the horizontal aspect, the horizontal focus, the temporal, and it deals with the psalmist's relationship with his life circumstances, often trials, sometimes blessings, but it also deals with his relationship with the enemies of God, the unsaved, as well as the people of God, how he's to relate to the people of God. Now, this is amazing. About one half of everything we learn about the attributes of God is found in one book of the Bible, in the Psalms. If you were to make a note of everything Scripture says about God, what he is like, what his attributes are, what his character is like, and you made a list from Genesis to Revelation, half of your list would come from the Psalms. Amazing what you can learn about God from the Psalms, an Old Testament book. And yet it still has so much to say for the Christian today. Again, that theology, when we learn about God, it's not just going to be like, oh, God, wow, he's really out there, man. He's cosmic. You know, he's like totally celestial. Okay, that's, this theology is practical. It's going to affect how we live our life, how we view our circumstances in life. And again, you're going to love this. It's almost going to sound like a broken record. The most frequent overriding theological theme in the Psalms is the sovereignty of God. He is in control of every circumstance and situation, every aspect of life. And the Psalms brings that out very clearly. Now, Psalm 1, 
is the first psalm, obviously, of the entire book of Psalms, of the 150 psalms. It serves a very key function for the book of Psalms. It's an introduction to the entire book. It sets out in six verses what the entire book of Psalms is basically going to be about. It's a wisdom psalm. It's not a worship or praise psalm. It's not a messianic psalm. But from a practical standpoint, all of those things are going to grow out of this. They're found in this. They're behind the scenes. They're all around it. Psalm 1 is infused with the spirit of worship and with the messianic spirit. It's a wisdom psalm, and it functions to introduce how we need to view all of the psalms. And it reveals something very, very important that will come out, whether it be in worship, the circumstances of life, the response to circumstances of life, the enemies of God and the people of God. Psalm 1 reveals that there are only two categories of mankind. See, it wasn't just our previous series, Thinking Biblically, that our, that our uh, uh, brother Gilson preached on uh, race and racism and showed that there was only one race of mankind, that God doesn't divide people up based on skin color and ignore the 99.9999% of the person that's identical for everyone. The book of Psalms reveals how God views all mankind, only two categories. As far as God concerned, people are not separated based upon race, gender, ethnicity, age, social status, money, beauty, intellect, singing talent, I'm, I'm glad of that, or any other criteria. God doesn't separate people that way. He separates them on one characteristic. He's concerned about the person's spiritual state and how they live their life as a reflection of what they claim their spiritual state to be. That's how God divides people. And what probably comes into your mind is from Matthew 25. After the second coming of Christ and all the peoples of the earth are gathered together, he places the sheep on his right side and the goats on his left. He divides at his second coming exactly like Psalm 1 says he divides people based upon their spiritual state. They're standing before God, which should be reflected in their, the way they live their life. The title of today's message, if you like titles, is Two Paths. Two Paths. We've come to a fork in the road at the very first psalm. Which path will we choose? If you take only one thing away from today's message, let it be this. There are only two paths in life. Both of those paths have eternal consequences. Take that away. Think about that, that there are only two paths in life, and there are eternal consequences, very different eternal consequences at the end of each of those paths. In Psalm 1, we're going to learn some key things, that the righteous walk a very different path from the ungodly, from the wicked. And the reason for this 
the psalmist brings out is God's word. Oh no, not God's word again. I can't help it. It's right there in the words of the psalm that our brother Joe read to us. And it brings out that the righteous will have a very, very different end than the ungodly, than the wicked, than the unrighteous. So this morning, as we go through this, ask yourself this question over and over again. What is your path, or what is my path? Which path am I walking on? It's not what I say, it's what I'm doing. Proverbs tells us this, whoever strays from the path of prudence or applied wisdom, whoever strays from the path of prudence will come to rest in the company of the dead. Let us hope this morning that the path that we walk on is the path of the righteous. Psalm breaks down very easily. The first three verses deal with the righteous. Verse 4, the wicked, and then the end of the righteous and the wicked. So let's look at the righteous man first, the righteous person first. The godly person experiences, as we'll see, the blessing of the Lord because he is deeply rooted in God's word and he doesn't live a sinful life. He lives his life in accordance with the teachings of God's word. The psalmist begins with the blessing of the righteous man. How blessed is the man who, and he's about to tell us who does what, but how blessed. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, there's two words for blessing. One of them, the Jews only used of God, recognizing God as the source of all blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. It's the way many Jewish prayers begin today, even in our Lord's day. When he prayed, we know what prayers he prayed. Even if the words are not recorded, they began with, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, or the eternal King. That's not this word here. This is a word for blessing that's used only of man. It has the idea of happy or joyful. It has the idea that one is blessed and happy and joyful because of what God has done in their life. Again, it traces back to God as the source of all blessing, but it doesn't focus primarily on him as blessing, but on the results of his blessing upon an individual. So think of it as happy or joyful due to favorable circumstances in life that come from the Lord. Then he goes right into the righteous man and his righteousness. He moves away from the blessing as to the reason for the blessing. Now, God never owes any of us anything. He doesn't owe us blessing because we obey. But our Father in heaven doesn't raise spoiled brats. When we do what the righteous man does in Psalm 1, it doesn't force God, us to, God to, to bless us, but it puts us in a position whereby God can bless us, if that's his will. He doesn't need to chastise us, as Hebrews 12 brings out, but we're now in a position where 
he can bless us. Here's what the righteous man doesn't do, and then the psalmist will go to what the righteous man does. And when, you listen, when we look at these words of these verses, I want you to think back to a parable the Lord Jesus Christ told, or an illustration. He talked about a man who had a demon, and he got that demon out of him and cleaned up his life, put everything in order. So he got rid of all the negative, but he didn't put in any positive. And what happened was later on that demon came back, looked and said, oh, wow, it's nice and clean in here. It looks pretty homey. And he brought with him seven other demons worse than himself. See, it's not just what we don't do that determines our walk with the, with the Lord, that determines what blessings the Lord may in his sovereign will bestow upon us. It's not just what we don't do, but when we get to the next slide, we'll see what we also do comes into play. But what doesn't he do? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The righteous man doesn't take the advice of the world. He doesn't take the advice of the unsaved. They're not his counselors. They're not his teachers. They're not his instructors. Instead, we're going to see what is his instructor in the next verse. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. You're not going to find him walking the way of unrighteousness, the path of evil, the path of wickedness that leads to destruction, the one that Jesus Christ said had a broad gate and many enter through it. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. That's not where you're going to find him. I like that it says scoffers there. This is where it really ends up. Whoever rejects the counsel of God, whoever rejects the path of righteousness and casts God's words behind him is basically a scoffer. He scoffs at the value and the importance the rightness, the holiness of God's word. This is what the righteous man doesn't do. In other words, he doesn't live like the unsaved, to put it in today's terminology as Christians. He doesn't live like them at all. If you or I are living like the unsaved, like the unrighteous, it doesn't matter what comes out of our mouth. This is where the rubber meets the road. What kind of life are you and I living? The only way the righteous man was able to live a life that was pleasing to God, the only way he was able to live a life that avoided the counsel of the wicked, the path of sinners, and the seat of scoffers is because he did something. He put something into his life. The only way you and I can avoid the counsel of the world and the wicked, the only way you and I can avoid the path of sinners and the seat of scoffers is to do the same thing that the righteous man of Psalm 1 did. And God wants us to do that. He's given us the same tool that the righteous man had. He gave us his word. Here's what he does to make sure he avoids the counsel of the wicked, the path of sinners, and the seat of scoffers. But in contrast to what he doesn't do, 
Here's what he does do. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is his delight. This is what actually thrills his heart. Does the word of God thrill your heart this morning? I, I've heard the, the reading of God's word described as coming in three phases in a Christian's life. It was a very cute illustration. It dealt with food because God's word is our spiritual food. In fact, the scripture says, I've esteemed your word more than my necessary food. We eat to maintain our physical health. We need to eat God's word to maintain our spiritual health. And so, it's been described as the medicine stage. Take it. It's good for you. I remember as a boy, all the strep throats, and my mother with this spoon, it looked like the size of a snow shovel, coming with this awful-tasting orange penicillin liquid. I, I, it just tasted awful to me. Medicine, take it, it's good for you. It'll help you get better. It'll help you have victory in your Christian life. The second stage is the, is the cereal stage. Have you ever tried boxed cereal, flakes, raisin bran? Try that one. Without milk? The dry cereal stage. Dry but nourishing. Okay, that's the second stage. And then the third stage is the peaches and cream, the, 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 the dessert stage. As you continue reading God's word prayerfully each day, its words transform the way you think. It touches your heart. It deepens your commitment and devotion and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It, I remember when I reached a stage. For me, it's the morning. I could not wait to wake up in the morning and run to the study and open God's word and begin to prayerfully read it. When I went to bed at night, I actually looked forward to that. That's the peaches and cream. That's the dessert stage. His delight is in God's word, the law of the Lord. And how do we know that's his delight? He meditates on it, not just in his study at four in the morning, but at day and night. See, he's, he's taken in so much of God's word that it now actually lives in him as precious truth. It transforms the way he thinks in any and every circumstance. He views it from God's perspective. God's word, God's truth is what comes back and motivates the desires of his heart that, that causes him to view everything the way God and Christ would view a situation. He knows immediately what should be done, what should be avoided, what should not be done, how to view a situation. This comes from meditating on God's word, contemplating it, praying it back to God, beseeching God to give you understanding of it. And he meditates day and night upon it. It doesn't say memorize. I mean, you can memorize. Sometimes after a while, the words just stick in your head, even though you're not intentionally trying to memorize God's word to be able to call it back. It might take years for that. 
but it comes up again and again during the course of his day and even at night before he sleeps. This is what he does. This is the reason why he doesn't take the advice of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And you know, there's a connection between his blessing in life and his righteousness. And here's the connection. Notice, blessed or happy is the man. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Do you see the connection there? Did you ever think about that before? He delighted in God's word. And as a result of that, there was happiness and joy in his life. When we delight in God's word, we're going to delight in what the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth brings into our life. We're going to recognize that it's intended for our blessing, for our good. And here's the result of God's blessing. Not that he'll never experience any difficult times. It's going to be brought out here. But God blesses so that we will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, that's an interesting picture. A tree planted by streams of water. I mean, here in, in, in New England, we have so much water and so many trees. You know, I don't know about Massachusetts. It's probably like Connecticut, uh, 60 or 70% woodland, forest. There's really that much. There's fewer farms now, so it's gone from 30, 40% to like 60 to 70% over the last 100 years. If Massachusetts is anything like Connecticut. And so we see trees everywhere. We really don't get it. But if you go to the Midwest or you go to a dry, arid place where there's desert, now it starts to become a little clearer. A tree is a picture of spiritual health. That tree is by a stream of water. Look all around, further from the water. A tree is what the righteous man will be like, a tree planted by a stream of water. It is indeed a picture of spiritual health, and it should not, should not stand alone. This entire company of believers at Grace Gospel Church should be standing tall like those trees. Look beyond those trees. You don't see a lot of tall trees, but right by that stream of water, all those trees. You know, this could look a little like the Mojave Desert out in California. Trees again, but with desert sand around it. Another one. Look at all that sand all around. Are we getting that picture that the one who delights in God's word and, and meditates on it day and night will be like a tree? How about in the Middle East? An oasis. This would have been more of what would have been in the psalmist's mind, perhaps. Again, sand all around and the trees by the water. Here's a close-up. We're going to pull away, and you're going to see nothing but sand. The only help is by that water. The Word of God is our living water that gives life. This is the way we can be, a tree 
in a dry desert if God's word has a prominent place in our life. How is such growth and greenery possible in the middle of such a dry, arid environment? How is that possible for those trees? A tree is only as healthy as its roots. Look at that green tree. Look at the canopy there and the height of the tree. Do you realize something? The roots go as deep and even a little deeper than the height. Look at the breadth of the roots. I put some red lines here. They're actually about twice as wide as the canopy of the tree. The root system is larger than the tree that you see. It's not just a little ball of roots. They eventually spread out, and they're twice. There's twice as much of that tree underground as there is above ground. A tree is only as healthy as its roots. Where are our roots this morning? Are our roots sunk deep in God's word? Is it our delight? Is it our peaches and cream that we meditate on it day and night? The results is that we will yield fruit, our fruit in its season. In its season, that's when a tree is supposed to yield fruit. Not out of season, in its season. At the right time, fruit will be all over the branches of our character. And our leaf will not wither. See, God, in his blessing that's described here in Psalm 1, doesn't just promise a good time. It's not just a party 24-7. The leaf withering, there has to be something that would bring about a situation, a condition where a leaf could wither. The dry times, the trials and tribulations in life. But even then, when our roots run deep in God's word, our leaf will not wither. And when whatever we do, we shall prosper. Here, the picture is clearly spiritual prosperity, as we'll see, and culminates in an eternal prosperity in verse 6. Not for the ungodly, but for the godly, righteous person who has his roots and her roots deep in God's word and is yielding its fruit and its leaf is not withering. But then the psalmist doesn't neglect the wicked, but the wicked neglect God's word. The wicked are not so. They don't prosper in everything they do. They don't yield fruit. They wither under trial and tribulation. They don't have roots deep that can draw up that life-saving water from God's word. You know, when trials in life come and we fret and worry or it brings about conflicts within a family or on the job or in the neighborhood or within the church, these circumstances do not produce those conflicts and sin. What they do is they reveal what was already there. What was already there was just waiting for an opportunity to explode out. A root of bitterness that springs up and defiles. Out of the heart, Jesus Christ said, proceeds all manners of evil. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, he taught in Luke 6. 
The wicked neglect God's word, and as a result, they are not going to prosper. They will not bear fruit in life. They will wither and die, and ultimately, at the end of their path, they will die eternally. He compares the wicked not to a tree planted by streams of water, that big, tall, green tree, but like chaff. Do you know what chaff is? Chaff is like straw. We're going to see what chaff is in just a moment. But it's so light, the wind drives it away. Sure, we've seen big trees that have fallen over from the wind. That's a problem with the roots, though. Did you know that? Or the ground being too soft and there not being enough roots for the softness of the ground. But the chaff, the wind just drives it away. Chaff is involved with the harvesting of grain. They, take the, they cut the grain in the fields, they bind it together to make it easy to carry, and they take it to the threshing floor. Even, in, even to this day, in countries like Afghanistan, they'll harvest wheat like that. They don't have farm equipment like we do in the U.S. or in other uh, more developed nations. And when they get the grain there, they'll then untie it and separate it, and they'll move a whole bunch out into a big open area, and we'll see that. And the first thing they do is thresh it. They beat it with wooden rods to try and separate the grain from the long stalks. And the stalks break during that process into pieces, releasing more grain. And then what they do is they winnow. And we'll see winnowing too. So here's a threshing floor in Afghanistan. Mountains surrounding it. You can see, uh, you can see the grain back here. You can, these could be the winnowing forks. Here's a threshing rod. Something they pick up and they beat some of this. Long stalks and now it's broken up. And you can see some of the grain there. And so they'll beat it. And then they'll pick up the winnowing forks and they'll toss it into the air. They wait for a windy day. The wind comes down off that mountain, and they here they're using actual pitchforks instead of uh, wooden ones that has metal at the end, but it doesn't matter. They're stepping on everything that they've threshed, and now they're tossing it in the air. And the chaff gets blown away by the wind, just like the psalmist said. What's left behind after the chaff is blown away some of it was blown across the ground, you can see here by the wind, but the rocks are on the end of the threshing floor. Stop the grain, but look what's on the outside, chaff, and some of it's out of, out of the field of view there in that picture. That's what he's talking about. The wicked are like that chaff. The wind just drives it away, but the tree stands tall in that same wind. That wind that blew that chaff away wouldn't even knock leaves off of the tree planted by streams of water. John the Baptist, in speaking about Jesus Christ, referenced Psalm 1. Now, he doesn't say in Psalm 1, but look at this. He says, he, referring to Jesus Christ, who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which is clearly taught in Scripture explicitly. We know it's Christ, and fire. What's the fire? The fire is judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand, just like those two Afghani farmers. 
his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, that is, of all the chaff, leaving only the grain behind. He will gather up the wheat, the grains, into his barn, but what he will do is burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That is the end for the wicked. They will not experience God's blessing. They will be like chaff that the wind drives away, but the Lord will burn that chaff with unquenchable fire. It's fire that never goes out. It doesn't matter whether the fire is literal or figurative. That's an entirely different question that some people have, and we don't need to get into that. But if you're here this morning and you are walking the path of unrighteousness, you have never trusted in what Jesus Christ did in bearing the sins of the world in his body on the cross. If you've never turned, repented from your sin and turned to God in faith in Christ and his finished work of salvation on the cross, then this morning you are chaff that will one day experience the judgment of God. But you don't need to. Christ experienced that judgment so that all who would call out to him for salvation would never be burned like chaff, would never be separated from God and Christ where there's the weeping of gnashing of teeth as Jesus taught. I don't say this to scare you. I say this to warn you. There is going to come a day of reckoning for every one of us. We all have a rendezvous with destiny that we cannot avoid. One day, every single one of us will stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. For those who bow the, the knee willingly to his lordship in this life, and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, that time will be a time of blessing and reward. And you will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But for those who don't bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ now, that day you will bow the knee. You will be forced to bow the knee. The scripture says in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. But it'll be too late. It's appointed unto man, the scripture says, to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Not a second chance. Now is your chance. The scripture says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not this afternoon, not tomorrow, not next week. Now. I, I, I urge you, I entreat you, I beseech you, I plead with you. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Cry out to him, be, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And he will do that. The scripture says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He delights to do that. Don't be chaff. Turn to him and be saved. The end is very clear. He begins with the wicked. Therefore, 
because the wicked are like chaff, because they neglect God's word, produce no fruit to God's glory in their life, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. No, they will be on their face, crying out to God, but it will be too late. Sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. The assembly was what, the, what we would call the church today. In fact, in the New Testament, that word assembly is used by the apostles in certain passages to describe the gathering of the church, the assembling together of the church. Here it's the assembly of the righteous. The wicked will have no fellowship with the righteous throughout eternity. And if they have no fellowship with the righteous, they'll have no fellowship with God and Christ either. But the way of the wicked will perish, just like the chaff is burned up with unquenchable fire. But the righteous, their end is because the Lord knows their way. Brothers and sisters, you who have chosen and trusted in Jesus Christ and are walking a path of righteousness, he knows the way that you walk. In every single situation and circumstance of life, every trial, every tribulation that comes in to your life, every temptation, he knows your way. He's watching over you. He wants every one of us to succeed and be victorious and stay on the path of righteousness. He knows. He knows he's not going to forget your labor of love for him, for everything that you have done to bring him glory by the way you live your life, by the fruit that you've produced. He knows because he's going to be the one through the word and by his spirit to keep your leaf from withering during those times of trial. The Lord knows your way. And that way will be the exact opposite of the wicked. Notice that little word, but. But the way of the wicked will perish. That's the opposite of what happens to the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous will not perish, is what the psalmist is trying to convey here. So today... Which of these two representative individuals most characterizes you and I? Is it the righteous man who delights in God's word and meditates on it day and night? Or is it the wicked who produces no fruit, doesn't glorify God at all, doesn't live for Christ at all, lives more like the world, enjoys being with the world more, than being with the company of believers. Which characterizes you? Today, which path do you find yourself walking? Is it the path of righteousness leading to life or the ungodly path of unrighteousness leading to God's wrath and judgment? Please choose carefully which path you follow. Choose carefully. Your eternity is at stake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the true teacher, the word, the Holy Spirit. And dear God, we ask, would you be pleased this morning to give us a great desire for your word?
so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you be pleased, dear God, for your name's sake, to keep our feet on the paths of righteousness. Help us, O Lord God, to trust in you through every circumstance. Help us to draw from the word what we need to help us live a victorious life for you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for saving us. We thank you that you will never regard us like chaff nor allow the wind to blow us away, and you will never judge us. We thank you for the blessings of your salvation. And indeed, our testimony this morning is that we indeed are blessed because of all that you have done. We are blessed because of the precious truths of your word. We thank you for it, and we thank you especially, Lord God, for the living word, your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.